0: welcome to the roots of the spirit podcast i'm your host spirit tafiq i'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement this podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity the social construct of race racism and social justice welcome to roots of the spirit welcome to the roots of the spirit podcast thank you as always for joining me i really appreciate your support. I've been seeing the increase in listeners from around the world, and I really, really can't thank you enough. I want to thank, as always, each and every one of my guests for sharing so courageously elements of their lives dealing with racism. I owe my most sincere gratitude and grace to all of my guests. Today's episode is... The rebroadcasting of a live podcast episode that I did last week with my mother, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, one of the Little Rock Nine who desegregated Central High School in 1957. The live podcast episode on Facebook lasted three hours. So I've broken it up into a couple different sections. So this is part one. I've been in a state of rage. It goes from rage to sorrow anger rage I mean it's like this roller coaster it goes one minute I'm just engulfed in rage and the next minute I'm just incredibly hopeful you see so much sweeping change throughout the nation and it's very inspiring to see so many people just the wide range of colors and religions and backgrounds out in the streets protesting standing up for injustice, speaking out against anti-black racism, saying "Black black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter, painting the streets with black lives matter, murals, statues coming down, all of these elements. It feels like we're in the middle of a revolution, but this is just the beginning. If the awakening is just happening now, we have a long, long, long way to go. There are so many resources floating around. So if you're not quite sure where to begin, Google is your friend. There are so many podcasts, movies, books, documentaries. It's the, the amount of information that is available right now. The arrival of black people in the United States through slavery, the hundreds of years thereafter, the institutionalized, Codification of racist policies and practices and violence that permeated our minds and our bodies for generations. I don't really want to talk too much on the intro because I want this episode to just speak for itself. My mother is the embodiment of a powerful Black woman, and I just want to move out of the way and allow her voice to radiate through your mind and through your heart. But one thing that I will say, is that I was jogging. And when I jog, a lot of things come to my mind. I feel like it's, it's my time where ideas come flowing and my imagination is keener and sharper. And one of the things that I thought of is that growing up as a child, my mother never told her children, oh, I'm one of the Little Rock Nine. This is what I experienced. It's not something we learned about. Because of the work that I do and I I work in a lot of classrooms throughout the country and one of the most common questions when I'm telling the story of the Little Rock Nine and my mother in particular is that she didn't tell us about her role in history. And so initially when I asked her that question, so why didn't you tell us? And she said that the country had not acknowledged the Central High School crisis. And now more than ever, I understand exactly what she's saying, because right now there's an awakening that there was not a couple months ago. And if your society, your community, your nation has a closed consciousness on racism, on oppression, on police brutality and violence and lynchings in the modern era, then it's almost as though... Why would she tell her children? There's no awakening for that to be contextualized in. And so it's a, just a thought that came through my mind that I think is important to mention because it helped elevate my understanding of why she didn't really tell her children about her role in history, but also the opportunities that come when there is an awakening. And right now there is an awakening. People are awake. Some people are still asleep intentionally, some people will never wake up, but I'm speaking to those who are in the awakening state right now. Without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with my extraordinary mother, Minnie Jean Brown-Tricky. Yay. Oh my God, you look so beautiful. So just for everyone's understanding, this is, you're in our living room, and so we welcome you. I'm literally in my living room in New York. My mother is in her amazing living room in Vancouver, Canada. And I'm just so honored that you have decided to spend some time with us to talk about so many critical issues that I know we all have very strong feelings and there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of uncertainty. You and I spoke and I said that I would not tell you just kind of the method to my madness, like the structure of the interview. um, It's going to be somewhat of a surprise, but it's nothing. It's not going to be anything new. You know I like it that way. Surprise, (laughs) surprise. So I'd like to cordially welcome everyone to a live taping of the Roots of the Spirit podcast. My name is Spirit Tawfiq, and I'm the host of the Roots of the Spirit podcast. And it is my honor to bring to you today Minnie Jean Brown Tricky. So before we get started, can you type in the chat? Where are you calling in from? Halifax, Ottawa, Michaela, New Jersey, Atlanta, Little Rock, Pittsburgh, Arizona, Arkansas, Vancouver, St. Louis, Cali, Toronto, LA, Pennsylvania, San Francisco, San Bruno, (laughs) Bay Area. Oh, Sherwood, Arkansas. That's absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much. At this point, I'd like to introduce you to our powerful, ravishing guest, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky. Our iconic guest today is known around the globe for being one of the first nine Black students to desegregate Central High School in 1957 in Little Rock, Arkansas. At the tender age of 15, Minnie Jean walked out of the sacred warmth of her own home, seeking an education, an equal education, running headlong into the brunt of white supremacy, mob violence, or put more poetically into the spear of the American flag. Although you're probably very familiar with her in that context of being one of the Little Rock Nine, Minnie Jean's activism, actually as Dr. Terrence Roberts recently said in an interview with CBC, is that your lifelong journey of activism began on September 11, 1941, the day you were born. But I would like to share with our friends and community the amazing work that you've done over your lifetime that spans beyond Central. And in order to do that, I feel that it's important to give like a bit of context for those of you who are not familiar with the Central High Crisis. And I get really excited, so I'm gonna try to distill it and condense it um, and hit on some key points But after that, I would like to tell you a little bit about Minnie Jean's life and career after Central. Minnie Jean, born and raised in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1941, grew up as a beautiful Black girl in Little Rock and had a very loving, warm, nurturing family and home. And Minnie Jean was told that she is not inferior to anyone and that she is a beautiful, magnificent girl. And so she carried that aura and that spirit around with her in the confines of a segregated society. Prior to going to Central High School, Minnie Jean went to the all-Black Dunbar and then Horace Mann High School. And after the Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954, Minnie Jean and her other classmates were given the opportunity to sign up to go to Central High School should they choose voluntarily In essence, she signed her name voluntarily. A list was derived from the list of names that were written down from that list. The school board tried to implement a plan that was trying to block desegregation and make it as difficult as possible so they implemented these conditions like oh you have to have good behavior you can't have attendance problems and so they took this large list of students who were wanting to go to central high school it was an all-white high school for a variety of reasons resources at the top of that list that list went down from over 100 to 75 and then on the first day there were 10 students a mob had formed outside the school protesting Black students coming to Central High School. Also, their parents were at risk of losing their jobs. And then there was the threat of violence. And the kids were told they can't participate in any extracurricular activities. So many of the students decided not to go. On the first day, there were 10 students. One student, Jane Hill, did not return after she went to school on the first day, was turned away by the Arkansas National Guard, and met by the mob which landed down at nine students. Eight of the nine met up at one end of the block. Elizabeth Eckford arrived at school by herself and was in the midst of a mob. And there are iconic photographs of Elizabeth Eckford in the midst of a mob being terrorized as she made her way to the bus stop being barred from Central High School because the governor had called out Arkansas National Guard soldiers to keep the students out. Now I'm gonna give you like the quickest crash course of subsequent events. They were turned away, And then they came back at a certain point under the protection of the city police. The city police could not hold the barricades. The students were whisked away. And then the president, Dwight Eisenhower, made a bold act, a lot of legal negotiation. Ultimately, Eisenhower decided to call in the 101st Airborne, 1,200 soldiers from Kentucky to come to Little Rock, surround the school, and take the Little Rock Nine in on September 25th, 1957. So I'll leave kind of the experience of the school to Minnie Jean should she choose to speak about it. But in essence, that was the first day they made it in. Minnie Jean was suspended for an altercation in the cafeteria and ultimately expelled in February of 1958. Once Minnie Jean was expelled, her her expulsion notice was World News. Dr. Kenneth and Mamie Clark, who were social psychologists who were instrumental in the Brown versus Board of Education case, heard about Minnie invited her to New York to finish high school at New Lincoln School. So after Minnie Jean was kicked out of Central, exiled from Little Rock, she finished high school at New Lincoln School in New York City. After that, a few years later, she went to Southern Illinois University where she was very active in sit-ins, in protests, in boycotts. That's where she met my father. And then in protest of the Vietnam War, they moved to Canada. She continued her activism in Canada working on environmental issues and human rights issues hand in hand with First Nations people. She was the Director of Immigrant and Visible Minority Women Against Abuse. She was the Executive Director of National Capital Alliance on Race Relations. She was a Professor of Social Work at Carleton University. And she worked in the Clinton administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Workforce Diversity. In this moment in time, she has been working on Sojourn to the Past, which is an immersive educational journey across the South where young people meet and greet with veterans of the civil rights movement. And there's this robust curriculum to go along with it. To date, it's been 20 years. And you can talk about how many thousands of students that have become family for you. She's the recipient of four honorary doctorate degrees. So her name is really actually Dr. Minnie Jean Brown Tricky. And so in semi- retirement, she's a teacher, writer, motivational speaker, the mother of three sons and three daughters, of which I am so incredibly proud to be one, and numerous grandchildren. Minnie Jean, I know that you are so humble. You didn't expect me to roll out your whole life, (laughs) but I think it's important because just like Will Count said about that iconic photograph of Elizabeth Eckford, a life is more than a moment. All right, so let's hit it. All right. I'm going to espouse a quote that's your quote and i just want your organic reaction okay growing up during segregation was like clutching a chain linked fence looking at a world i was not allowed to participate in
1: hey that's the american way that was then and that is now put simply not much has changed i don't know where i'm going with this but i was in cape town south africa actually following you spirit and i was in a museum and there were a group there was a group of white teachers who were lamenting the townships, which is the segregated area for Black people, a mix of poor and people who have some possessions. And they said, oh, the townships, isn't that horrible? I said, excuse me, your townships are high rises. Why don't you look at home? Because this whole idea of always looking elsewhere and not here Oh, that works really well. That allows us to be oblivious to the delusion, illusion, that is so much the United States. I mean, there are reservations. There's Japanese incarceration. There's unequal schooling. There are so many ways of segregation. There's the white support of the government for whites to move into the suburbs. Now they're saying, oh, I live in a bubble. Well. That was created on your behalf, and the other was created on our behalf. You know my favorite expression, hashtag profound intentional ignorance. The only way we can maintain this is to continually miseducate people as to the true history of the United States. I'm just freaking out, and we're gonna to get to the protests later, but I'm thinking about how much backlash there was against the 1619 Project, which totally freaked people out because there's been this sort of story of these Europeans who were looking for uh, religious freedom or whatever. And they came to a completely clean continent and took it, but also black people came. So in the hierarchy of arrival dates, which we're all so invested in, Guess what? We've always been here. So this whole thing of not allowing Black people to feel at home in this space was kind of blown up. She interrupted that narrative and I'm so glad. So that's how I start. So I'll let you ask the next question.
0: In order to get to this moment in time, we always have to go back. I get it now. I know why they hated me so much because my spirit was so irrepressible.
1: Oh yeah, I'm so proud of that spirit. I transferred it to you, by the way, and to my children. I gave it to you, I hope. But you know, the one thing I kept thinking when I was at Central is if I can think, why can't you think? And I kept wondering why of 2,000 kids, there didn't seem to be thought except about 20. And I kept thinking, I'm the one who's supposed to be inferior. I'm the one who's supposed to be stupid. I'm the one who's supposed to be ugly. Where's your brain? That's my challenge to Americans right now. You know how many times somebody will come up and say, oh, I have a PhD and I didn't know this. And blood runs down my chin because I'm biting my tongue so hard. But in my head, I'm saying, You can't help it. You're American. You have been so miseducated that you can't even think past. I try to say it nicely, but that's how I feel. I feel like, and then people say, what can I do? And I'm saying, there's never been more information out there on just about anything in the world. I binge watch Toni Morrison. I binge watch Dr. D'Angelo. I binge watch Karen Anderson. I binge watch these people because I need to hear their stuff. So I don't think I'm crazy.
0: What are your thoughts about the real reason why you were
1: expelled from Central High School? Well, as I have said to the close to 9,000 kids on Sojourn to the Past, I was expelled because I was tall, beautiful, and proud. And they couldn't handle it. They couldn't because the training, the stereotyping, was so embedded in their thought Kill it. You know, it's like just kill this. Because this contradicts my knowledge. This contradicts what I've been told. This contradicts what I believe. And this girl thinks she's beautiful. How dare she? She thinks she's smart. She thinks she's talented. What is her problem? Kill her spirit. So that's okay. That's them. That's their loss. Because I had a lot of lot to offer. And I thought, wow. They're just as smart as I am. It's their loss. I want to talk about how white people are so constricted and how much energy it takes to be constricted. And I looked up the definition. It says pretty much to become narrower, to just close, you know, it's to become narrow, a view that is so narrow. And that constriction hurt all the kids. It hurt the kids who might have wanted to be friendly who were punished, and so to me, uh, Central High School was an American tragedy for the whole nation, maybe even for the world. I mean, it is definitive United States history. It's got every aspect of what we talk about. It's got the constitution, it's got the amendments, it's got the courts, and yet I can walk into the most expensive post-secondary institution in the country and say, have you heard of Little Rock? And nobody raises their hands. So that's proof to me. If you, if you haven't heard about Little Rock, then you're miseducated. And it's not even about me, but it's about the whole society, <laughs> the structure, how it's used, how it's maintained, all those things. So to me, it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful teaching tool, could be used, and it kind of isn't. So that's, to me, that's typical of the unwillingness to truth tell about the nation it's getting better because kids are smarter you get emails on my behalf you know what they want what they ask did we get a set of questions was it
0: finland or norway norway and there were 100 questions right yeah there. it was like 75 i was like whoa <laughs> so maybe we could tackle like 37 of these
1: <laughs> so that's kids
0: everywhere
1: everywhere
0: yeah just for context she got a letter from students in norway who are studying the little rock nine and their questions were so straight to the point like it kind of put our racism on blast in their questions it was it was it was pretty interesting thank you for that okay george floyd brianna taylor ahmaud aubry and the horrifying long list of Black lives that have been stolen at the hands of 400 years plus of anti-Black racism, police violence, and murder. Last night, CNN released an article You are quoted as saying, I've just been so sad about whether my life was worth anything because it doesn't seem like things have changed. And I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. I got pushed back to Emmett Till and growing up in Jim Crow and Central High School and being arrested as an environmentalist. Every aspect of my life has just come forward and it's just sorrow. Well, I have to admit that
1: my despair was so deep that it scared my kids and it actually scared me. And I'm sort of coming, oh, I, so they asked me, how can we help? (laughs) And I said, vanilla ice cream and chocolate. They got it for me. Um, Let me just say that not often, most of the time, we don't get to sit and watch somebody die. And we did. We did in that instance. We actually watched George Floyd die. And so it would, of course, create mourning, because it was so shocking. But you know what? When people started marching, they were marching for themselves. They were marching under the guise of Black Lives Matter and police brutality. And, but they were marching for school shootings. I've been to schools, white kids, and they're saying, oh, School shootings, that's just normal. They're marching for watching kids in cages, their friends, their families, people they know. They're marching for the fact that there's not regard for the lives of children in our society because we don't educate them well, we don't have universal healthcare, they're disposable. I'm loving that they can see the connection. Watching a person die reminds us us, of our own mortality. Part of the sojourn thing is that I have 9,000 letters from kids. Every color, every ethnicity, every class, every religion, all kinds of cultures. And I feel that Americans don't know their kids. They haven't listened to them at all because the things they tell me about what they feel and what they think would blow their parents' heads apart. They are worried, they are frightened, they feel uncared for, they feel diminished. But the other part of them marching is that it's pretty scary when you have all these different kinds of people marching. That's what's the fear. Okay, it's okay if these black people march and oh well, whatever. But when their kids and their grandmothers and their cousins start marching, boy, you better bring out the military. You better bring out the big guns. You got to bring out all the armor because that is the most frightening thing that can happen when people see themselves and their own oppressions and can see it and feel that relationship with other people. And I do know that people marching in other countries are calling attention to the issues there. Like one of the really interesting aspects of this was in Canada, they're raised in hell they're saying. Your discrimination against black people against indigenous people is criminal. Justin Trudeau, you better do something. Canada come alive, come to truth. I'm loving that people are doing it everywhere because They're sick and tired of the stuff that's going on. So, hmm, that's all I can say is people are marching for their lives and they're marching for all our lives. And I love it, I love it. When Black Lives Matter is fully understood, then it relates to everyone. You know, that's the call, to see your own relationship in relation to that. I'm pumped up and so I'm not, so despondent. But I am because I I feel all the militarization, all the weaponry that is in the hands of law, quote, enforcement is very dangerous and kids are going to get hurt and people are getting hurt. And I'm so sorry for that. And, And, you know, yet we're a democracy. We're the best. We're exceptional. No, we're not. You're not. You're not. You're not even close to exceptional. And you gotta stop spreading that lie. You gotta stop believing it and you gotta stop saying it. If I hear somebody say that again,
0: uh oh. I co facilitated a school, a middle school assembly virtually the other day, and a sixth grader said, I find the United States to be very hypocritical. We're always looking at other countries and telling them how they should run their country and talking about human rights violations. And she's like, we have our own oppression right here. I know you know. You work with kids all the time. And like, the kids are keenly aware of what's going on. They're so it, smart. It jarred me. They're so smart. But it reminded me of how you look at things in that way. And so just a phrase. White Rage, the book and the the framework philosophy. White Rage.
1: I mean, you know, you don't even have to read the book. Okay, you can binge watch Karen Anderson. You can binge watch Robin DiAngelo, White Fragility. You can binge watch anybody. You don't. There's no excuse. I didn't know. Uh, no, no, you can't can't get away with that anymore, because they're they're there. I, I, I Kimberly Crenshaw, with intersectionality, and you know all these all these things are related. Uh, Dr. King was really a prophet. He said the problems are, put simply, militarism. Well, we can see how much money has been spent on arming the people who are the police, not just local, but the whole sort of body of people who keep people in line and how little has been spent on equality in schools. And I mean, it's so, everything is so visible to me. It's, I mean, the COVID thing.
0: Oh my goodness. You're jumping ahead. I'm I know, but kidding. it's all related. It's all related. Okay. So break just, it down. Break it down. Break down. What did COVID expose that we were so willfully looking away from?
1: Inability to have regard for people and their health and their position in society. I mean, it's to me, it has never been clearer. This George Floyd thing, the COVID. You know, the US has the highest number. I know it makes us crazy because we have this thing on this side saying, we're exceptional. And on this side, we're seeing truth. So, I mean, how do you reconcile the two sides of your thought? You get to choose. You actually get to choose. So, kind of, that's my challenge. Listen to the kids, they'll tell you.
0: On that note, I mean, just because we're already speaking about it, uh, my sister Star, who I believe is on here, um, we had a call, Black and Brown women convening together, just in community, to just be among one another when everything kind of just got really... Intense. And so she was saying that out of Canada was coming the idea to defund the police. And when she first said that, I just like, it's almost like this brick wall came up in front of me because I just know how entrenched (laughs) law enforcement on various levels, just kind of the institutional element of that. When I first heard it, it kind of threw me. And now it's on the table. And now city politicians are moving forward with trying to reorganize their budgets and trying to defund the police. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that.
1: Well, your average person in the United States sees how equipped these people are and that somewhere behind all this militarization of the police is some kind of intent to prevent any kind of insurrection or any kind of protests They're serious. And so they, they ha- are prepared. So I'm, I'm thinking the defunding is stop giving them all military equipment. What are they? Stormtroopers from the Nazi era? How could they be so equipped? And we're, we're paying attention to that. Can you see it? Is it scary to you? Does it make you hide under your bed at night because these people are serious? Did you see the pictures of the so-called rubber bullets? Did you see the kind of weaponry was used? So if Dr. King says we suffer from militarism, poverty, racism, materialism. So the next thing he's gonna say is what about the looters? And I say they suffer from internalized materialism. They can see that people who have they large sums of money doing illegal things or maybe they're in jail. No, actually they're out or they get pardoned or it's not so serious. And maybe you shouldn't be so punitive. And we know that thousands and thousands and thousands of black and brown people are in jail for a joint. And now that it's become a middle-class white drug, what are we going to do about that if we... Think for a couple of minutes how this, this resonates and starts to see the, well, the ill intent of that kind of militarism. Uh, so, why not? They shouldn't have that kind of equipment. Did you see the tanks rolling through the cities? Come on, people. Oh, Tiananmen Square. Oh, wasn't that terrible? Wake up, look at home, pay attention pay attention. Is this what we want? Is this what we want for a society? Highly armed people who enforce the status quo? Is that what a democracy is? So I mean, good luck interrogating that.
0: Black Lives Matter. I know that you have engaged with young people of the global Black Lives Matter movement, that you are in full support and have been since day one. It started off as three absolutely courageous, brave, beautiful black women who were just sick and tired of seeing their people killed now it 's a global movement, and they're young and they're energizing and engaging even younger people and empowering young people and it and I just I 'm curious about like the From the 30,000 foot view, like what does that look like to you having been such a continual soldier of the civil rights movement, but seeing young people like going so hard and doing so much amazing work in the name of justice and freedom? Well, you know, it makes
1: me feel good and they need help. And that's the thing. I mean, that we just can't sit and say, oh, that's so nice. They're such great organizers. How do we help? How do we help? How do I help as an old woman? How do I? Um, I try to brainwash kids in nonviolence in every place I go, which is a hard one. You have a deeply violent society in which, in the United States, there are more guns than dogs in the U.S. And that's a lot. And more (laughs) guns than people. So how do you talk about nonviolence? How do you the way it's been framed is all erroneous so you're trying to try to help kids to think about what is the nature of living a nonviolent life and i do what i can i do what i
0: can well just just like as i as i honor the amazing incredible strong shoulders that i stand on i also just want to acknowledge Patrice Collars Alicia Garza and Opal Tomate for creating Black Lives Matter organically and seeing how beautiful of a a movement that has been created. They personified my definition
1: of movement, which means people will rise up and do things in all different places because it's necessary to do so. So thank you, young women, for that effort. So how do we help them? How do we recognize it? How do we honor it? Those are the questions we have to ask.
0: There are so many organizations that are already doing incredible, groundbreaking work. And like in this moment, it's like, let's pour into them. Let's, let's support them in whatever they need in the infrastructure of their organizations, in the movement building, in organizing.
1: Yeah, because in the final analysis, Black Lives Matter is about all of us. You know, the expression, you're not free if I'm not free? Just imagine what it would be like not to be so constrained, quote, as a white person, that you would be fearing that you would not know things, that you would choose not to know things, and you'd think you can go on with your life. Well, you can't. You must not, because this is, this is about all of us. This is about all of us, and that's, that's the thing we need to understand.
0: Yeah, actually, Patrice Cullors, even though it's been a couple years, I just love this. She was just describing Black Lives Matter, and she said, Black Lives Matter is our call to action. It is a tool to reimagine a world where Black people are free to exist, free to live. It is a tool for our allies to show up differently for us. Black Lives Matter offers a new vision for young Black girls around the world that we deserve to be fought for, and we deserve to call on local governments to show up for us a human rights movement that challenges systematic racism in every single context. And then they went on to talk about climate justice and the, and, and the whole intersection of all of these different elements that play into our experience as humans. I really want to get to everyone's questions, so I'm going to try to fold two questions in together. OK. The quote is, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation, and that is an act of political, political warfare, Audre Lorde. And I'd like to end with, what does liberation, a world rid of the lie of white supremacy, stark inequalities in our schools, the school-to-prison pipeline, privatized health care, and the list goes on. What, in your imagination, does true liberation look like? I think being
1: educated is, you know, what true liberation is about. That we have, that we get educated for real and not this airy fairy thing that we call history and truth, memory. It's, It's very simple. Education, you know, I've been to schools where they have everything. Unbelievable resources. And I've been to schools where the windows where they w- were wearing coats because there was no heat and light bulbs were burned out and I'm thinking what we're exceptional and we allow this and we encourage and maintain this no 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 exceptional, none but the anti-science thing that's so prevalent we're talking Kids should do STEM, but when they find out stuff, they shouldn't talk about it. When they feel terror about climate change. Be quiet, Greta. The president dissed Greta. Mm -hmm. Woo-hoo. That's he is the mirror, because he is the product of American education, people. You need to know that. You need to know that. And if this is what you think. Your education should produce. Just keep doing the same thing and the same way you've been doing it. You get what you produce. So I know nobody wants to admit that he's the definitive product of American education, but he is. That's how I see it. He's a mirror. He's a mirror. Good luck. Just to close out. I I didn't answer the question because I don't. What was
0: the question? Well, <laughs> so I'm gonna go back to the caring for myself is not self-indulgence; it's self-preservation. Talk to me about your garden, and then yeah. We're well,
1: just Audrey Lord, Jeez, she might have said that, but she was an activist till she died. Okay, so okay, so that's a that's a pot that's an affirmation that we have to make to ourselves so my despondency doesn't take over or should it be anger so it doesn't take over. My care is my flower garden, which is monumentally beautiful because I had time to work in it because of my quarantine. So I have to walk out there every morning and say, this is creation. This is creation. This is about beauty. This is about love. And this is what I need to see to calm myself. And I think we should all find something that allows us to calm ourselves so we can be ready to meet another day. So during this period, I'm doing Zoom things with, (laughs) I kind of did a kind of Zoom graduation for a couple of groups. So I'm not exactly just rolling over and playing dead But I have to remember what beautiful is. Of course, my grandson, but I also, or my grandchildren, but I use my garden to help me remember about love and peace and what's possible.
0: Thank you so much, Mother Minnie Jean Brown Tricky.
1: (laughs) I mean, you know, these things could go on for hours and hours and hours. Well, I would
0: like to um, invite anyone If you're interested in asking a question, I can unmute you and you can ask out loud and or you can type it in the chat. Let's see. Let me roll over. I did see a hand. Yes. Okay, Jaleesa. Yay. Welcome, Jaleesa. Hi. How are you? Hi.
2: Hi, Minnie Jean. I don't know if you remember me. (laughs) I do. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. My mom wanted to be a part of the call, but uh, she was unable to make it tonight. But um, I'm so happy to be able to meet with you again and be on a conversation with you and your daughter this time instead of you and your sister, Phyllis. Yeah, girl. Mm-hmm, Phyllis. <laughs> we all know Phyllis. That's my cousin. That's that's my whole heart right there. Um, but let Phyllis get- thinks I'm too nice. <laughs> <laughs> That yeah, that sounds like. I don't
1: think I'm nice at all. But anyway,
2: (laughs) go Um, ahead. Question: I typed this question, so please feel free to skip over it, Spirit. But I, since we have met, I have began my career in activism. I helped organize the first protest in Pittsburgh, according like going along with the Black Lives Matter movement in accordance with uh, George Floyd's death. And I'm since then I've been attending the marches and the protests and still being a part of that organizing community. So I just wanted your advice to sustain longevity in a career of activism because I am learning very quickly how tiring it can be and how much work really goes into, you know, being an activist and being an organizer and trying to be a leader.
1: Well, try not to be a leader, OK? That made the first space um, because that's very taxing. And that if we think about what is our role in, in sort of activism, it's mostly modeling and um, having a very true commitment to ourselves and, and that whole thing about self-care. I'm not sure some of the times I don't even know if self-care is possible or at least when I was younger I didn't Uh, but then apparently you really do have to work at not burning yourself out because you're up against formidable enemies I call it the biggest death machine ever put together in the world okay in in the United States you're really so you really I think you have to try to do small things, rather get small victories if you can help to work with young, young people about nonviolence so that by the time you get to be a certain age, you've already internalized violence to the point where it's sort of nihilism and all that. So catching kids really early, talking to them and helping them. Cause you have to have some victories, and maybe those are the kinds of victories that we get rather than transforming the whole system. They are not gonna defund the police, but we can, at least in our mind, understand what defunding the police means. There were initiatives, I watched a person on PBS last night who was an assistant attorney general, and there were incredible initiatives in her portfolio to stop the transfer of military weapons to police. There were the consent decrees for police departments, uh, all kinds of initiatives which were undone with the change in administration. So we, we can get information from the work that other people will be doing and not always reinventing the wheel. That I think is is my main advice to activists. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. It's already been invented. You access what has already happened and the learning that has taken place and the information that's been shared. So that may be our our most important duty is to find out what's been done, how it was done, and don't try to really try to start over. And so often when I'm talking to groups, first, they don't know what's been done. They don't know what strategies have worked or not worked. They haven't done the research and all kinds of things. So if we look at the principles of nonviolence, when they talk about direct action on the other page, one of the things they say you've got to know everything about your issue, and you've got to know what your opponents think. So it's a huge, you're right, it's big, but you don't have to start over and that's that's the key. Who can help? Who can work with you? And maybe just backing off every once in a while because you got to get out of it because it'll take you over. Yeah. So it's it's self-care and the whole thing of thinking, this won't get done unless I'm there. That's a really, 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 really bad place to be because it will get done. If you look at what my definition of movement is, it'll happen simultaneously in different places. But so I know this is long. Spirit, when you were doing Black Lives Matter, you got a lot of training, right?
0: Yeah, the Justice League in New York. So they have okay. like direct action, nonviolent training, just how to yeah, so it's protocol, getting arrested. So it's, yeah, it's risky
1: to take sort of untrained people out in it's risky because they can get hurt and you can get hurt. So, I mean, we have to really think about the necessity for training in order to be uh, effective protesters. So yeah, that's enough, that's scary enough. You don't have enough time in your life to do it all, as I've discovered, but we can work on
0: it. All right, we have Ms. Brown. This thing. There you go. Oh, Oh, I know who that is. (laughs) Oh, Oh, so you can hear my voice? I can. Your face.
1: (laughs) Oh wow, I'm in the Matrix. Hi, Miss Brown. How are you?
0: Hey, Miss Minnie. Hey, Spirit. Would you ask the question that I sent you? Absolutely. I am baffled by the rhetoric this is the younger generation's fight. It creates division. How is it, we're in this together with COVID-19, but it's the younger generation's fight when it relates to protests against police brutality and racism. It has always been the brave, undaunted, courageous activism of children, teenagers, and young adults that made and continues to bring social justice reforms in this country and worldwide. I don't want to believe that this fight solely belongs to the younger generation. I regret that the work done in the 50s and 60s was not finished and a new generation inherited centuries of racial inequality, institutional segregation, white supremacy, and oppression. But we, the old generation, we got your back. Absolutely. Thank you for
1: that. I mean, you know, we shouldn't, we need to protect the young people. That's our role. We need to protect them. I mean, part of the reason they can go out is because we're scared. We're going to lose our car. We can't. Somebody's going to see us and punish us because there's a lot of punishment for activism. But we have to take care of those young people. And that's that's our role. I'm not going to try to tell them what to do because, you know, that doesn't work. But I can pay attention and I can help in some way. Somebody was talking about a T-shirt that says we're not our ancestors activists or something like that. And I'm thinking, okay, (laughs) but if you say so, right, but you're standing right on my personal shoulder, okay? You better know that. Barack Obama better know that.
2: (laughs) We had a state
1: politician at a rally at the state capitol who blared through the megaphone or bullhorn however you want to call it and said it's the young people's fight and i'm like why you bulldog asinine well first woman. of all how dare we say that it's the young people how dare we not be with them i've seen every kind of age in these demonstrations and I'm proud of the young people, of course, but I'm proud of everybody who went out there because like I said at the beginning, people are marching for their lives, their lives. People are marching because they've seen their children mowed down in school shootings and nothing happened. People are marching because they feel there is no regard for people. And they can feel it, especially when you watch a person die on television, right in your face. So, no, we're not going to let the young people take the breath of this. We can't. We have to join them. We have to be with them. They're ours. They're our children. I think it's a tragic mantra. Oh, God, everything is a script, okay? You know, like, woo.
0: Yeah, I think that it's, it's, it always has to be kind of considered carefully. That's my opinion. Because, I mean, as we're seeing, like, people who have infiltrated the, the, the peaceful protests and who have reached havoc, who are not a part of the movement, but then that's a reflection of the movement. I just, when the narrative is suspect to me, it has to be, um, we have to think carefully about it. For example, Miss Minnie Jean, when we went, we uh, were invited by the Justice League and the Civil Rights to Education. This forum, they literally had a ceremony to honor the elders, the young people, the people in the middle. So, in other words, I don't, I personally don't think that that's the prevailing narrative. I think that here and there, there are people who espouse that, and especially to Aunt P point um, especially if you're a leader and you're saying that from a public platform then it bears weight but i think that we have to be very careful because i and you are very well in touch with young people and we know that's not the truth we know that that young people if given the opportunity they want to know about the little rock nine they want to know about the the people who came before them and blazed those trails they want to see young people at the heart of the movement which is what we're seeing right now that's what's so captivating is young people
1: Oh, yeah. I Let me tell you about this one school I go to. Uh, I, I've been meeting with the fifth grade now for 15 years, and I'm not going to b- bust them out. But then we have a, a parent meeting, and the parents come because their kids know more than they do, and they can't stand it. So the room is packed with parents who come because their fifth grade kids know something they don't know. And it just cracks me up when like woo-hoo, yeah that's how it's supposed to be we let our kids teach us so it's a reciprocity where if we could understand the they teach us and we teach them kind of process so that's what i see as the ideal like okay i'm quickly gonna say in uh even in selma uh, we know about john lewis and jose williams and dr king Viola Lee Jim Reeb, two white people who got killed, Jimmy Lee Jackson, but we don't know the people who were cooking pots of beans and who were making Kool-Aid and ice water for the protesters. So this has always been a combined movement. So we have to kind of understand that, right? Our mama, geez, I think my mama was the best activist of all because she let all kinds of crazy stuff go on at her dining room table.
0: And that's how it all begins. That's how it all begins. I have a question from Trey. Hi. Hi, I'm here. I'm here. Hi. It's
3: very nice to meet you, Minnie. Nice to meet you too. Thank you uh, for talking to us tonight. I had a Um, an unusual question for you. I I hope it's not too unusual. Don't worry. I'm I'm wondering about the backlash. Um, You know, we've had an enormous, overwhelming amount of support and solidarity from various cultures and organizations and celebrities and just everybody and their mother is out for us today. And my question is, I, I feel like we'll see a backlash if we haven't You're already seen it. it. What, do you think yeah. all that, what do you think all that's threatening? and, and It's already exactly. there. Exactly. It's, it's, some of it's explicit, some of it's subtle. But my question is, is that within that solidarity, what do you advise people who are in the movement right now to do in order to solidify the strength that they have right now in in their in the the allies, allies that they do have and how not to become completely
1: cynical <laughs> about. I mean, my God, people have been cynical a long time, and people have been desensitized to violence. Consequently, it took this trigger to kind of like slap them in their proverbial faces, and I'm thinking that the very treatment that people have received is the, the continued, that'll continue the momentum. Because people, white people are shocked that they're getting treated like this, okay? Mm. They're very shocked. And I think a lot of times they thought they were immune to this kind of treatment and that it was just for the other. But now that it's for them, I think that's the momentum that has to keep, that keeps it going. It's that shock. They're talking about me. They're hurting us. Mm -hmm. They're desecrating our churches. That's the momentum, I think. Because it's gonna get worse before it gets better. And unfortunately, because the powers that be, whoever they happen to be, can't tolerate an uprising that it has the kind of diversity that this one has. Mm-hmm. So that's what keeps the momentum when people see, oh, I am also a victim of this. And I think, well, I mean, they haven't gone home yet.
3: <laughs> do, you think, do you think that there's anything that we can do
1: politically or strategically that can actually solidify our position? Well, you know what? When my kids were growing up, we had a list on the fridge of people to boycott because of South Africa. Stop buying stuff, okay? Yeah. Just stop it. Just stop it. I was talking to a group of kids, and they were saying they're really tired of the, the quarantine. And I said, why? Well, we want to go out. Well, what are you going to do when you go? We're going to buy stuff. And I'm saying, mm-hmm, that's it. You're going to buy stuff. Stop buying stuff. So I had to buy something. I want to buy something to, in order to harvest my uh, lavender. So I went on this um, Canadian company called Lee Valley. I said, you know, I'm hearing all this stuff about Amazon. I really want to, I do shop locally, but I'm taking this seriously. So without, you don't even notice that you're not paying attention to the people around you the people who are trying to live, the businesses, it's kind of like you you don't you don't notice because the power, the magnetism of online shopping is so great. The corporate Amazonian kind of thing. And I was like, you know, I stopped myself in my own face because the first thing I did was go to Amazon to look for that product. And then shook myself for a minute and said I can get that from a local company mm. I had a big fight you know who I am you know who you are about people going to Chick-fil-a who made their feelings and beliefs very clear yeah and you see black people land up all around the corner and when I say you shouldn't give them your
0: money it's not just black people
1: I don't care. I don't care (laughs) if it's not just Black people. I'm just that. But it should be Black people who shouldn't be going there, okay? Because they made it very clear. So we are people. We, well, they can all choose. But to have these corporate entities that are so powerful, and we're just passing our money out to them. So sort of rethink some of that. And boycott Israel and let them know you're boycotting. I object to this. Therefore, I am responding in this way. So, okay, quickly if I go to a college, I say, How many people have emailed your congressperson? Nobody raises a hand. And I said, Oh my God, it's
0: a sentence. And you press send. How hard is that? Mm. Can I couple on a a, a, a part B that is it's much related to Trey's question, but coming from Sam? Um, yeah. Curious to hear Jean's perspective on the importance of the votes and the evolving means of voter suppress, suppression, long wait lines, lack of mail-in ballot opportunities, etc., which can be used along with protests and donations to influence change.
1: Well, that's what I mean about it. it's going to get worse before it gets better, because there are just... All kinds of diabolical aspects of no regard for the people, okay? I was talking to a person who was saying, Oh, I live in the best place in the world, blah, 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 blah. And I said, You know what? You've been everywhere and you know better than that. I mean, so part of challenging voter suppression is to stop believing that it's the answer to everything. And, it, and one of the reasons we know that it's really important is how much they try to stop it. So we have to understand that they're not just stopping Black people, okay, with, with their gerrymandering and voter suppression. They're stopping all kinds of people. So you may say, well, they're not stopping me, but they're stopping somebody else. So how do we challenge voter suppression? Well, we do that thing like send an email, make a phone call, write a letter to let them know that we're not tolerating it? And there's such a thing as critical mass. If a lot of people did that, it would actually make a difference. But a lot of people don't. So yeah, the diabolical stuff is alive and well. And it's in operation as we speak. And they're doing whoever they may be whatever enemy is working at it right suppressing the vote making it impossible you know what the u.s is always oh we have to go and observe their voting process who the hell is observing
0: yours right I love this quote from Lynette. I think there is a need to decentralize this idea of leaders understanding that we all have an integral role to to play, that we don't all have to be marching, and that all of our ministries lie in different places in writing and observing and feeding and joy making and funding and documenting, healing, providing, holding safe spaces and educating.
1: So, see, I don't have to answer any question because you already have the answers. Thank you for that. That was beautiful. Trust yourselves that you know how to do this. That's a really important thing. Trusting ourselves that we're capable and we know how to do things. It's some amazing, that's some serious love for self and belief in self and belief in our capability and our possibility and our potential. So, I mean, if we talk about that girl... 60-plus years ago, why I drove them crazy is because I had a positive self-regard for myself. And hey, enjoy it when you make them crazy, okay?